Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So we'll read from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. An amazing passage, full of superlatives. In our last look at the passage, we looked at verse 19. And we asked, what did it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? What did it mean that God would fill us with his fullness? And there is nothing more that we can ask of God for us personally. It is the highest step on the soul's ladder to God to pray as Paul prayed that God would fill us with all of his fullness. Make us more Christ-like in this life that we live. And Paul has reached that highest rung. And all that remains now, all that can happen when you have come to that point is to burst forth in praise of the God who has lavished such great love upon us. This conclusion to his prayer in verse 20 and 21 is full of doctrine, full of teaching, but it's a prayer of great spontaneity. It just overflows from a heart that is overwhelmed with the love of God. We spend a short time looking at it this evening, but before we do, let's challenge ourselves. Let's challenge our own hearts. Whenever you, whenever I, Consider the love of God to me, a sinner. The love that sent Christ into this world. The love that took him to the cross. Can I ask you, does my heart, does your heart, overflow with praise to him? Does it? Or does that love of Christ for sinners still leave you cold and unresponsive? Let's see how Paul concludes his prayer. As I say, it's full of wonderful teaching. The first thing that we notice is that 
Paul introduces us to the omniscience of God, and rather to the omnipotence of God. He says, Now unto him that is able to do according, exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Verse 14, where we began to read, is a prayer for the church. And verse 21 and 20 and 21 are its conclusion. The verses are an expression of praise. We call it a doxology. Common doxology that we often know about, that people sing, is that doxology that says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Very often sung in days gone by in North Antrim at certain times of the year. One of the things that we see in this is that nothing is too hard for God. Paul has asked for a lot in this prayer, hasn't he? He's asked that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. He's asked that Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith. He's asked that you will be rooted and grounded in love. He's asked that you may be able to understand with all of the church the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of God, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer! What a prayer list! But you see, with God, no prayer is too demanding. No prayer is too ambitious. No prayer is too big. Whatever you're asking God for, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even think. How great is our God. How powerful. In 2002, um, a minister friend of mine who was bivocational, he had a secular job during the day, demanding secular occupation, rung me up and asked if I would visit a friend of his, a member of his church who was in hospital in Belfast, a mutual acquaintance. And since his church was away far out into country areas, he thought that he maybe wouldn't make it up. And this man was seriously ill. Would you mind dropping in to see him? I said, certainly not a problem. Going into the royal anyway. I arrived and the man was in a wee sideboard. And I went into the room and sat down with him and just begun to talk when a nurse came in. And the nurse said to me, I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to leave. The consultant is next door and he'll be in here in a moment. Uh, I said, fine. I stepped out into the corridor, waited. I thought, I'll wait till the consultant goes past. Consultant breezed out of the room, a big man with files under his arm. And he was accompanied by a whole crowd of others. There was doctors and subordinates and nurses all walking behind him, walking very purposefully, walking very quickly. He walked out of the room and went straight into the room, never paid any attention to me, went straight into the room of the man I was visiting. I waited for 10 or 15 minutes, and again, the door of the room flung open. 
And this big man, and he was physically large, he came straight out of the room with all the people following him. He turned toward, turned left, went down the corridor, and he stopped. In fact, he stopped so abruptly that the people following him almost walked into his back. And he turned, and he came back to me. And he lifted his finger and said, It wasn't me that healed him, it must have been you. And he turned and walked away. I'm left stunned. Anyway, I went in. And I said to the man in the bed, who also looked stunned, what has just happened? That consultant said to me, it wasn't me that healed him, it must have been you. He said, the consultant came in. And he spread two sets of notes on the bed in front of me. And he said, these are your notes from last week. Now this chart here and these test results show the condition of a man who has at most two years to live. And these are the ones that we did this week. And they're both yours. And this one is a man who's perfectly healthy. What did you do over the weekend? He said, I asked my church to pray for me. Right, he says, I'm discharging you this afternoon. You may go back and tell your church their prayers were answered. Now, bear in mind, I'm a runaway from Pentecostalism. And at this time, I'm believing these things don't happen. The patient didn't know what was wrong with him. This consultant seemed to know. But God knew. And perhaps he also knew that I needed a bit of a shot of faith. And in his power, he dealt with both situations. Even though it was more than myself, or the patient, or we could ever ask or think. Psalm 50 and verse 13 tells us, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. In that hospital room that day, I can tell you that when we prayed together, there was praise. But Paul doesn't just say that. He doesn't just tell us that God is able to do what is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. He says, according to the power that worketh in us. He's pointing to something within us. What is this power that worketh within us? Now, I think... God add, Paul adds here that the ability of God to achieve his will and purpose is best appreciated by us by the greatest miracle of all, by the power that is working within us, by the miracle of the new birth. Think and consider what God has done in your life and in mine. Think of the wonderful achievements 
that Paul has outlined in verse 16 to 19, all of those things. If God can do that in me, a rebellious sinner, then there is nothing that he cannot do. My ransomed, redeemed, forgiven life is a walking visual aid to the power of Almighty God. So Paul says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. So God is all-powerful. He can do great things. He has and can work miracles. Don't you believe that the miracles of Christ's day were miraculous, not some kind of accident or just some kind of thing that can be explained away, like the liberals believe. He has the power to answer prayer, even when we don't know what to ask for, for the greatest personal evidence of that is how he has brought salvation to sinners and how he has changed lives and how he has brought us into his kingdom, as Paul has been explaining in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The second thing we see here then is that not only is God all-powerful, but that he is highly exalted. We have to introduce a note of caution here. Just because God can do things that we can't even imagine about, that we cannot even think of, that we cannot ask for because we don't know what to ask for, that does not mean that he will. Paul says in verse 21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. What's the difference between a charismatic healing meeting and what happened in that hospital? It's simply this. It's simply that God was glorified in what he did. Not some evangelist or pastor standing at the front and inviting people to come forward so that his wonderful faith in God can be seen by all, so that he can be seen to be a mighty healing evangelist. It was simply the Lord intervening in a miraculous way, in such a way that nobody was praised for it but God himself. So we learn something else about the nature of God from this doxology. God only does what brings glory to his name, and he does it in the church, through the church. He answers prayers, but he doesn't answer selfish prayers, and he doesn't answer prayers with a wrong motive. And Paul adds in verse 21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. This is all connected up, connected together. It's sinews and bones. It's God doing more than we can even ask for, like what he did in me, and it's done for his glory alone. Anything that God does, even when he answers my prayers, even when he uses us in his church, any blessing that we might be to others, it's not of us, it's of the Lord, so that all of the praise goes to him alone. In fact, we cannot do a thing. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God is glorified in what Paul has been praying for the Ephesians. See, the place where his glory is manifested, it's the church. All of God's magnificent attributes have been demonstrated in his relationship with his elect people, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his love, his grace, his goodness, his long-suffering, his kindness. The place where his glory is manifested. And the person who brings that glory to God is Christ. All of these glorious attributes of God manifest in Jesus, the head of the church. This doxology is a song of praise. A song of praise to the God who is all-powerful, and who is highly exalted, who is glorious. And lastly, I want you to see that God's praise endures throughout all of eternity. God has been glorified and praised and worshipped and adored as our Heavenly Father in every age. So Paul adds at the end of this doxology, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. His name is eternally glorified. Even in the history of the world, um, his name is from ever, his glory is from everlasting to everlasting. But in the history of this world, even in the, in the Old Testament period, in the New Testament period, in the Apostolic Age, even in the Dark Ages, in the Reformation, in the Puritan times, in the Great Awakenings, in the revivals, in 1859, in the early 20th century, even in modern days, his glorious name is praised, praised by men and women, praised by people living in terrible, ungodly states, in Islamic states, in communist states, in China, in Russia, and even in decadent, spoiled Western nations, True believers join the praise of our wonderful Redeemer. Just two considerations then. When I read this, I ask myself, why does Paul add the phrase here, world without end? When we know that the end of the world is near. Turn with me in your Bible just to Second Peter, chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 7. Second Peter 3 and 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, by the word of God, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat the earth also, and the works which are therein shall be burned up, saying then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, when the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found in him, found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. The world will end. It will come crashing down. And it won't be climate change that's responsible for it. And it leaves us with one of these delicious little biblical mysteries that stir our minds and, our, and in its solution turn our hearts to praise. When I was young, I, I attended the local Church of Ireland Parish Church every Lord's Day. I only did so because my parents wanted me out of the house, obviously, being a troublesome child. And I went to the BB Bible class at 10 o'clock and when that was over, they shepherded us into the pews at the back of the church to make a nuisance of ourselves. And we learned, of course, the liturgy, uh, the standard prayers. I, I learned it off, some of it off by heart. To this very day, I can still recite word for word the old general confession of Archbishop Cranmere. I remember the conclusion of some of the chants that the choir sang. I remember the Gloria Patria sung at the end of every psalm. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. It was included in the Anglican liturgy by Cranmere back in the time of Henry VIII. And its inclusion, I think, and again, you can't disagree with me. Its inclusion must have influenced to some extent the translators of the King James Bible in 1611. And I say this because if you go home and check, then the phrase world without end is not part of the Greek text. It's not in the Textus Receptus, which forms the basis of the AV, the Textus Receptus, the received text, simply reads to Ionos, to Ionun. In other words, that simply means forever and ever. Forever and ever. Before that, the literal translation of the text would be throughout all generations, Ganea, forever and ever. Amen. So in Greek, Paul is not in any way disagreeing with Peter. He's not disagreeing with his own writings. He's not disagreeing with Thessalonians. 
First uh, Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, where he says, You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not um, escape. John agrees. Revelation 21 and 11 talks about how he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth has passed away. First heaven, first earth have passed away, and there was no more sea. Paul, Peter, John, the Lord Jesus himself, all of them teach that this world will one day come to an end. So then, why does Paul appear here in the AV to say world without end? I think perhaps very reasonable explanation is that in the century between Cranmer and the AV translators, the phrase world without end had become a colloquialism in the church, become a common saying among Christians. They knew what it meant. They knew that it meant that endless ages would roll forward, and it was simply included because absolutely everybody knows what we mean here, that God will be lifted up in his church forever and ever, not just in this world, but in the world to come, and that makes a very personal application to this. Are you ready for that day when this world will come crashing to an end? Because it may be soon. But it also makes us think. Because if we take the Greek text, tunaionos, tunaionin, forever and ever, Paul's talking here about generations and ages, is he not? And that brings me to ask the question that evangelicals sometimes ask Is there time in eternity? What do you think? Are there discernible ages, or is eternity simply timeless in the sense that we do not have linear time there? You know, sometimes I think, especially in evangelicalism, doctrine is shaped more by hymn writers than by scripture. A lot of evangelicals suppose that an eternity linear time, as we know it, will have ceased. And I've mulled over that idea quite a lot myself. I wouldn't, um, of course, believe that we become eternal in the sense that God is eternal. We're mortals who have a beginning. But somehow we assume that in heaven, lapsing time has ceased after all. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. But look, Paul doesn't speak of that here. Paul speaks of us here praising God throughout generations, through ages, forever and ever, ages going on, ages and generations lapsing one after the other. He's talking about time unfolding. 
He's talking about time moving forwards in God's plan. It's taking in the gathering in of the elect, taking in the end of the age, taking in the general resurrection of the dead, taking in the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, wherein the saints shall dwell in righteousness and revelation. There's silence in heaven for about half an hour. In Revelation 6, verse 10 to 11, the martyrs under the altar are told to wait a little longer, and that waiting implies that a period of time will elapse. And it takes time for trumpets to blow and bowls of wrath to be poured out. These events are not simultaneous. They are happening in a linear sequence. You must make your own mind up. But if you're looking for a better song to describe eternity with the Lord, I think John Newton would have been more accurate when he said, when we have been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Paul talks here about world without end. He's referring to, to time, to countless generations rolling forward in eternity endlessly. And throughout those endless ages, our growth in God, our appreciation of his love, our being filled with God's goodness and fullness in verse 10, will surely continue. Paul has already told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 and verse 7 that in the ages, the generations to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Only eternity will reveal the love of God to us in its fullness. We have much, much more to learn. And in eternity, as endless generations roll forward, we will find out more and more and more of God. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.